I'm Leanne Lord, and this is Human Story. From the time she was young, Captain Cassidy heard promises of wonder. If she did this, or believed that, or avoided a long list of temptations, she would find herself smack in the middle of a world of wonder. She chased that promise from Catholic Maryland to Baptist Alabama to Waco, Texas, finally landing in Pentecostalism, all the while waiting for wonder to materialize. In 1986, when I was just a teenager, a musician named Jean-Michel Jarre held a remarkable concert in my hometown of Houston, Texas. This concert involved a whole crew of skilled technicians rigging the skyscrapers of our entire downtown district to light up with lasers and other special effects, all done to complement the music he played. The sheer scale of this concert, especially with the technology we had at the time, still dazzles me today. For weeks ahead of time and weeks afterward, people talked about it. We all wondered at what one person's imagination could accomplish. Forever after that concert, those who attended could share this moment with each other and remember it together. That, to me, is what wonder is all about. Wonder is that feeling of awed, surprised, joyous admiration for something. Something wondrous captivates us and moves us to start thinking about the bigger things in life. And it connects us to all the other people who feel captivated in the same way. It involves this kind of shareable astonishment mixed with intense curiosity. When we encounter something wondrous, we ask, how did this happen? What does it mean? Wonder inspires us to dig deeper, to find out more, maybe most of all, to share. I missed that concert. I didn't go downtown that night. I stayed home. My sister went to see it. She still talks about it to this day, but I missed it. I was so busy chasing false wonder that I missed the real thing when it happened right under my nose. Gen Xer, born smack in the middle of my generation. When I was a little girl, I lived in a perpetual state of wonder. I spent my early childhood in Hawaii, just a block or so from one of its most popular beaches. Though my family was incredibly poor, my mom made sure to get me into reading as early as she could. Once I realized that those squiggles everywhere around me actually meant something, that some magic translated them to words and sentences and stories, I was off to the races. I never looked back. I was certain that the world contained all this magical stuff. Fairies, gods and goddesses, spirits. It was all out there somewhere. I just had to figure out how to reach it, how to connect with it. But everything changes. When I was seven, my mom married a military guy. While dad did military training stuff, my mom, my sister, and I went to live with mom's parents in Baltimore. And my grandparents were super strict Catholics. I think 
people living in most Catholic-dominated cultures think their Catholics are the most intense Catholics of all. There are Irish Catholics and Mexican Catholics and many more. They're all serious about it in their own ways. But my mom's side of the family are German Catholics. They got downright intense. They abstained from meat on Fridays, not just during Lent. They attended Mass twice a week or more. They had a porcelain toddler Jesus doll they dressed up for major holidays. And nuns and priests were so common in my family that I naturally assumed for years that everyone had at least a few in theirs. My favorite aunt is a downright ferocious nun. Mom had been a single mother for much of our raising in Hawaii, and she hadn't exactly been strict about religion. My grandparents clearly thought my sister and I had been raised as feral animals. So my grandparents immediately plunged us into a whole new world of angels, demons, saints, bizarre rituals like dabbing one's fingers in special water at church and crossing oneself and endless recitations of magic spells, I mean prayers. I took to all these new practices like a duck to water. I was just ensnared. Old school German Catholic mysticism merged seamlessly with my existing overall worldview. Now I had Christian mythology blending together with fairy tales, other cultures' mythology, and the comic books I began to devour around that same time. I had no ability whatsoever to figure out if a claim was true or not. Those silly advertisements on the inside covers of comics could hold my attention for hours, like that omnipresent $2.98 hovercraft ad. I naturally assumed this was a literal vehicle that I could ride around in, like Luke Skywalker's speeder in the first Star Wars movie. Now imagine that blending with saints' biographies and miracle claims about the Virgin Mary. To my child's mind, it was all there, this world of wonder. It was just out of reach. I hadn't yet figured out how to get to it, but I was positive that I would if only I kept trying. One day in Baltimore, my aunt, the nun, and my grandma were driving me and my sister somewhere. I was just looking around all curiously, enjoying the ride and the new scenery from the back seat, when I saw something that immediately caught my attention for years to come. It was a banner along the top of a strip mall church along the highway. This church didn't look like any church I'd ever seen, but that didn't matter, because its banner said, Jesus visits here every Sunday. gosh. Stop the car, Grandma, I yelled. We have to go to that church next Sunday. It took a little while for my aunt, the nun, and grandmother to figure out what was going on. They hadn't even noticed the church or the banner. But I was frantic. I really thought if we went to this church, we would literally get to see Jesus. My family had been dragging me to Sacred Heart for months. I was positive I had never seen Jesus there. Oh, Catholic Mass had its appealing smells and bells, as people call it, though there wasn't much about Mass itself that captured my mind or heart. But this? Oh, I had to see Jesus. I had to. I remember asking why Jesus had never shown up at Sacred Heart. My aunt the nun suddenly had a lot of explaining to do. And I was not at all convinced by her reassurance that Jesus really and truly did go to Sacred Heart every Sunday, just we had to see him with our hearts. That explanation felt very hollow. If Jesus was in all churches every Sunday, then why did that church have a sign 
specifically pointing out that fact. Clearly, Jesus did something different there that he wasn't doing at our church. So I wanted to go to that church. Despite my pleading, my family went to Sacred Heart as usual that Sunday, and as I'd expected, I did not see Jesus there. I was one sulky little kitten. I was positive that this other church was living it up, playing playground games with Jesus. But all I got at boring old Sacred Heart was endless dry masses and then filtering out to wait quietly for the adults to quit chit-chatting while Grandpa lit out across the street like he had well and truly earned that reward. Still, I remained fervent. When my family moved to Northern California when I was 10, I turned into a little wood nymph of the forest. But I still held all these different beliefs that jangled together discordantly. Catholicism, comic books, various mythologies, ghosts and spirits, even Santa Claus. I knew I would one day find magic and the invisible world. I just needed to figure out how to get to it. but life was starting to turn for me. When I was 12, my family moved to Mobile, Alabama, and I hated it there with everything I had. I didn't get along with the kids, and it was usually way too hot to go outside to play. I retreated even further into books and comic books, adding video games and D&D to the mix. Back then, the early 1980s, D&D meant first edition, barely advanced D&D, and video games meant old-school Atari games. My mom almost bought into the satanic panic, a very popular Christian conspiracy theory that said tabletop role-playing games were invented by demons to lure children into Satanism. Thankfully, she realized fairly quickly that the whole conspiracy theory was ridiculous. My family's next move to Houston came when I was 15. Initially, I was desperately lonely. I couldn't find anyone who shared my interest I felt completely out of sync with the other kids. I nursed this quiet, desperate little hope that there was something else out there, something magical, something wondrous, but I just didn't possess the key that would open that door. I was probably easy pickings for the Southern Baptist girl who invited me to a pizza blast at her megachurch. Jennifer was super pretty, super popular, very fashionable. She was everything I wished I was. When Jennifer invited me to the church party, I accepted without even knowing what on earth a pizza blast was. My mom allowed me to go without a second thought. I'd been to so many church kids' events growing up, this didn't seem like it would be much different. We were both drastically wrong about everything. A pizza blast was a way for churches to attract kids to their evangelism events. It pretends to be a party that just happens to be at a church. But it's actually a very hard sales evangelism event featuring a hellfire and brimstone sermon that preys on children's worst fears, a classic bait and switch. And y'all, that sermon sandblasted me. have been older than that young child who had obsessed for hours over hovercraft ads and comic books, but I wasn't much wiser. 
It didn't occur to me that any Christian leader could possibly ever say something that wasn't 100% literally true. So that night, I came home with wet hair from being baptized. My mom was horrified. It hadn't occurred to her that this was actually an evangelism event. Neither one of us had ever tangled with Southern Baptist-style religion before. This was just the beginning of a long spiral into more and more extremist thinking for me. Oh, and Jennifer completely ignored me at school after that night. She'd gotten her notch on her Bible cover with her friendship evangelism, and now she had no further use for me. Very soon after joining the Southern Baptist Convention, though, I left it. To my mother's great relief, the hypocrisy of the people bothered me enormously, as did the pastor's habit of constantly asking for money. But more than anything, the wonder-seeking side of me was very dissatisfied. I had been promised a wonder-working God. When that God failed to materialize, I left. For a few months, I was a normal 80s teenager again, or at least as normal as someone like me could be. But I still wanted to belong to a church where Jesus really showed up every Sunday. By now, I'd figured out that a lot of religious promises were just metaphorical, but it just felt like there should have been more than what I was seeing. A real-life God should be leaving real-life footprints everywhere. But despite my religious leaders telling me constantly that he did, I wasn't seeing it. So, all too soon after leaving the Southern Baptist Convention, I threw myself into Pentecostalism. Remember that concert I missed in 1986? That amazing, wondrous event? My Catholic sister got to see it, but my fundamentalist church leaders completely disapproved of secular stuff like that. It still bothered me that none of the promises any of my leaders made ever seemed to come true. But I didn't have the ability at the time to think critically about claims especially not claims about stuff I desperately hoped was true. A couple of years later, though, in the early 1990s, I almost got sucked into a fundamentalist cult in Waco, Texas. No, not David Koresh's cult, but it was just down the road. And it happened just before that whole story hit the news in 1993. This other cult's creepy, hyper-intense leader visited my church and scooped up whatever victims he could find. He kept promising his prospects that we'd see miracles at his communal farm, oh yeah, Jesus had blessed his group, he said. The cloud of God's favor had come to shade his farm. And if we wanted to move to the next level in our faith, we needed to go with him. Something about him freaked me out at the last second, so I refused to go. I wasn't the only one like that either. Though he initially attracted widespread attention, in the end, he only bagged a couple of my friends instead. 
a pair of young men who had joined Pentecostalism about when I had. Those friends returned not long after David Koresh's compound went up in flames. They were in very poor health and recovering from horrific inflicted injuries. From what they said, this other cult leader was even more abusive and authoritarian than Koresh, and he had a lot more guns. Worst of all, he had taken the Branch Davidian's downfall to mean that his god approved of the farm much more. And he took that incident as permission to treat his followers even worse. It seemed like every step I took to find what I sought only got me closer to the risk of serious harm. About a year later, my faith in supernatural beings and ideas collapsed under its own weight. Too much about our universe contradicted those beliefs. The stuff I'd been trying to ignore, that I'd been shoving into a deal-with-it-later pile, fell down right on top of my head. Because I'm a gamer, I thought of it, and still do, as my role to disbelieve. Gamers roll for many things while they play, to make a successful attack, to find a trap hidden in a room, to withstand poison, to sneak past guards, climb a wall without falling. For many years, I'd failed my role to see through the illusion of my religious beliefs, but finally, I made the role. I had finally, successfully gotten free. I was about 24 when I realized my entire belief system had been based on false claims I'd bought into. I explored other religions for a while, Zen Buddhism, Hellenic Paganism, and others, but eventually I realized there was nothing supernatural going on with any religion. While this slow process of disentanglement was going on, I saw a story about Harry Houdini, who died in 1926. He had promised he'd find a way to reach his wife, Bess, after death. They even set up a code so they would know each other. The mediums Bess consulted said they could get her in touch with her husband, but they always failed to deliver his code. She tried for ten solid years before giving up. That story broke my heart. It still does. Just imagine how hopeful this widow must have been at first. And then how crushed she grew as each attempt to reach Harry failed, as each promise each medium gave her turned out to be untrue. It was a potent reminder of how seeking false wonder can stymie someone's development for years, how desperate hope can lead us into some very sad and dark places. When I think about how exhausting it can get, I'm reminded of a poem by Lord Byron, the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast, and the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself have rest. That really covers how I felt when I finally accepted reality. Thanks to half a lifetime searching for wonder in false claims, I lost out on so many experiences that I can only laugh about it now. I joke about feeling like a tourist in my own generation. Besides that amazing Houston concert, 
I never got a real spring break. Never went to my high school prom. I've never even tried weed. I missed out on most, if not all, of the cultural stuff that defined Gen Xers' lives. If it happened between 1986 and about 1995, chances are I only caught it years later, if at all. At the time, I told myself this stuff was just ephemeral. I was storing up treasure in heaven, after all. Heaven was what mattered. I had to keep my focus there, or I might be led astray and miss out on it entirely. But now I see religion, and really spirituality as a whole, as a distraction from reality. We only have limited attention to give. If we're spending it in one place, we won't have it to spend elsewhere. While I was denying myself all those experiences, I thought I was doing something far, far better with my time. In reality, I was simply making it less and less possible to fit in with my peers and my culture, which made my religious group seem even more like the only game in town for me to play. I'm sure it's no accident that people who deconvert from authoritarian religions often feel like they're at such loose ends, like they have to learn from scratch how to speak people. In a very real way, they do. But those folks can't experience their generation's formative experiences the same way years later. It'll always be different for them. It took me more than half a lifetime to figure out that real wonder can't be found in false claims. The best we're going to find there is a state of worked-up emotionality, and, and that might be fine for some folks. It's not for me, though, because it's not dependable. We're not always able to work ourselves up into those states. In Christianese terms, it often feels like prayers just bounce off the ceiling. Sometimes, very seldom, believers in false claims can get to that state. All too often, though, they can't. When we're dealing with reality, though, Wonder just flows out of real things. It's dependable precisely because it's real. We can make accurate predictions based on reality, whereas we can't with false claims. And unfortunately, we have limited time and attention to grant anything these days. If we're chasing false claims, we're usually ignoring the real stuff right in front of us. Or worse, we're considering it the superior source of wonder when it was just us working ourselves up all along. drive in my little Miata up that winding mountain road toward Dahlonega, Georgia, to see Amicalola Falls, I might not ever have been there before that day, but I know it'll be beautiful. I'll see the falls, even if it's a dreary, overcast North Georgia morning. I'll feel wonder that this site could exist, that so many people can find it worth protecting and spending resources to support and maintain. For the rest of my life, I'll remember it and marvel at it. If I open Hesiod's works and days to some random spot, I know I'll dip into magnificent poetry that expresses all the best humanity had to offer then. I know I'll come away with my eyes sparkling with tears and my heart bursting with joy. It's not because gods and goddesses are real. It's because someone real came up with that poetry. It's because the wit shimmering in every well-chosen word is real and compelling. 
All that stuff represents wonder I never felt dealing in fairy tales and religious blah blah. Then I was just frustrated. I kept searching and looking, but never found what I sought, till I let go of all my false beliefs to embrace that which is real and true. Once I opened myself to real wonder, it overwhelmed me, as it still does today. Seek real wonder, and then share it wherever you can. For years, Captain Cassidy has described the fundamentalist world she left behind, first in her smart and hilarious blog, Roll to Disbelieve, and now as a columnist at Only Sky. That was episode two of Human Story, a podcast exploring the human experience from a secular point of view, one story at a time. Each episode, I'll bring you a different storyteller, one secular person sharing what it's like to be one of 7 billion living, feeling, thinking human creatures temporarily awake on a minor planet. Next time, we'll hear from funk drummer, composer, and podcast machine George Robb on fear, zombies, and the end of the world. So what's your story? If you have a secular perspective, a good story, and a gift for telling it, Go to onlysky.media slash submissions to submit an idea for an episode of your own. We're especially interested in post-religious stories, stories about life after you're done grappling with religion. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to live in your head and see the world through your eyes. That's onlysky.media slash submissions. Human Story is a production of Only Sky Media, a home for journalism, storytelling, and opinion, serving the growing community of the religiously unaffiliated. Visit us online and add your voice to the conversation at onlysky.media, and subscribe to the Human Story podcast on the service of your choice. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Lord. See you next time for Human Story. <laughs>